And uh, I'm most grateful for the opportunity to come uh, to Ohio State and particularly the Mershon Center. It's my first visit uh, to the city and, of course, to the center. So it's marvelous to have this opportunity. And uh, you'll notice that on the title slide, the word imminent's not there. Um, uh, but it underlies everything that I'm going to talk about. Um, and I've deliberately put those terms there uh, because I'm going to try to focus on the strictly international legal aspects, which is strange for someone who's not a lawyer at all, um, but someone who's thought about it as a military officer. I did have a responsibility for a while as, uh, on the policy of the law of armed conflict, uh, which led to my work with the International Committee of the Red Cross. So I was compelled through my work to think through these issues uh, relating to the laws of armed conflict. I think just why the title's there is to uh, the idea of prevention and preemption. Uh, as far as my talk is concerned, they are strategies. They are things that politicians say, military leaders might say, and strategists think about, and they use those terms in that way. Uh, during my talk, I want to talk about anticipatory self-defense and explore uh, the challenges that lie in that. You know, some scholars say, uh, there, ain't, there ain't no such thing, um, and uh, others uh, think there is a, a little margin of movement, and the current U.S. administration thinks there's a fair amount of movement in relation to anticipatory self-defense. So there's a whole spectrum of things, but underlying it, um, uh, all of this, is the question of imminence, uh, and is a threat imminent? What, what do we mean by imminent threat? And really, I, I just want to try and focus for the purposes of what I'm saying, and I hope for discussion later, just on, on that aspect. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to get into preemption and prevention, and we can talk about that afterwards if you want, but uh, uh, I'm just going to talk about the legal aspects of um, anticipatory self-defense. Now, uh, uh, forgive me for being perhaps just a little basic on the laws of armed conflict. Uh, and I know there are people here perhaps more knowledgeable than I am in this regard. But um, uh, the historical development of the laws has followed, uh, you could argue, um, science and technological development of the kinds of weaponry and how uh, operations are conducted on the battlefield. And if you look at these milestones where there have been major developments in the laws of armed conflict, the Hague Convention, of course, in 1918, dealing with uh, uh, all various aspects of the conduct of hostilities in the field, prisoners of war, uh, incorporating lots of uh, preceding customary rules that were brought into the, the Hague Convention. And of course, quickly followed by the Geneva Protocol. It's called a protocol. It's meant to be part of a bigger treaty, but the protocol banning uh, uh, the use of chemical and biological weapons following the terrible experience in the uh, First World War, and the public revulsion that, that came out of that. So there was an impact of, of that as well. So that's another milestone. The 49 Geneva Conventions, of course, followed the Second World War, uh, which was uh, characterized by massive aerial bombardments, and so it, it refined the law in relation to legitimate military targets uh, and various other aspects, but largely driven by the nature of warfare, driven by the scientific and technical developments that, that go along with that. And then uh, another um, 
uh, two decades later, in 1977, the additional protocols of the Geneva Convention, um, which uh, there was a watershed at that point. This was uh, after the huge wars in, 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 in Southeast Asia, uh, Vietnam, of course, Southern Africa, uh, and one of the major changes there was, was about legitimate military targets. It was about sort of civil protection of civilian population, um, about uh, combatants who were non-state uh, uh, combatants, and so it dealt with that. And of course, I have to say pretty quickly that the U.S. is not a party to the 1977 additional protocols for a number of reasons, and one of the major reasons is to do with the definition of combatants, not the only one. Uh, other countries, other major Western countries like the UK, took a long time over it, but eventually um, uh, ratified it in the in the 1990s, but with some pretty uh, heavy reservations, particularly in relation to new attacks on nuclear facilities. Um, so I just trace that that development, and all these rules, though, um, are very much to do with uh, uh, the rules when conflict is in progress. And so uh, there has been this, historically, this uh, important evolution, an advance, I would say, in the laws of armed conflict uh, in direct response to the public and direct response to the sci scientific and technical developments and the nature of warfare itself. Of course, with regard to us ad bellum, you know, before the war starts, in other words, the justification for it in the first place, uh, there's been a natural uh, and understandable a huge amount of caution, uh, and particularly, of course, since the end of the Second World War and the development of UN Charter and the art Article 51, uh, which was interpreted by many as being more res restrictive, of course, to try uh, to, in a legal sense, uh, uh, outlaw wars of aggression, as they were, were termed then, and to try to try to, in some ways, restrict uh, the uh, right of self-defense uh, without having to resort to the UN Security Council or, or, or whatever. And there is a, a great deal of concern uh, on the part of many, and it's very topical now, uh, is the element of anticipatory self-defense. And just a, another little bit of history, just as background to help help you think about these issues, which some of you will be kind of very, very well informed about. But it seems extraordinary that we have to go back to the century before last to find the sort of seminal case uh, where um, a group of insurgents, uh, not op operating under the uh, behest of the U.S. government, but insurgents into going into Canada. Uh, to uh, carry out operations there, and the the British then in Canada carrying out, a, as a, if you like, a cross-border raid and uh, and destroying a ship which was carrying weapons to to insurgents to stir up an insurrection, and uh, and the uh, the judgment of Daniel Webster's statement that comes out of that. Uh, it talks about a necessity of self-defense. It has to be instant, overwhelming, leave no choice for other means and no moment for deliberation. And the word imminent doesn't appear there, but you can see that it's, it's, it's in there. No, no moment for deliberation uh, uh, is, is, a, is a key part, I suppose, 
no choice of other means. You have to attack, otherwise you're going to suffer the consequences. So, and that's been the, nothing's really, um, in a legal sense, changed since then. But of course, the world has hugely changed since then, and the nature of the threats that governments face around the world change enormously. And the law, rightly in my view, is, is moved uh, slowly, but uh, I think we're at another watershed moment in international uh, and the, the law of armed conflict in legal history, I think comparable to uh, the 1977 additional protocols after the huge wars of, uh, in, in Southeast Asia and Southern Africa and, of course, Central America as well, and, and Second World War, First World War. We're at, a, at, a, at this point, a kind of watershed point where we need to really examine this aspect. So I think this is why we need to think about this, this issue. Uh, I mean, the only other statement I, when, when we looked around is, is Roosevelt's statement in 1941, uh, which is you know, not a legal statement about anticipatory self-defense, but it's, it's, uh, at least it puts it very graphically. Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, with Pearl Harbor in, in mind in, in this context and so on, um, it, it, I mean, you, if you were to put it forward and fast forward a little bit more, um, and here I'm quoting Judge Rosalind Higgins, a, a British judge, who said, uh, in a nuclear age, uh, should a state passively accept its fate before it can defend itself? I mean, you're looking at the uh, delivery of a weapon that could have huge consequences, massive casualties, massive damage. I mean, if you knew something was going to happen, do you, do you follow slavishly Article 51, or you know, this is assuming the information's good and all the rest of it, um, so there's a prima facie case that we need to be very clear about this and have thought it through. Um, but uh, we'll just see how, we'll look at a few other cases uh, which are relevant to thinking about this issue. And this, this list, um, and it's not uh, comprehensive, um, shows you how states were very reluctant to actually uh, explicitly say they were dealing with anticipatory self-defense. They avoided it. And of course, the 62 Cuban Missile Crisis was, was close enough to the Second World War and the overhang from that, uh, and that the US government uh, claimed it was acting under actually Chapter 8, regional arrangements of the UN Charter. Um, it didn't even invoke the, the right of self-defense in Article 51 in that particular case. There was an interesting one when just uh, looking at it technically, it was very much to do with uh, anticipating or preventing uh, the then Soviet Union getting in a position where it could deliver uh, medium-range nuclear-tipped missiles into the United States at very short range and very short notice. So uh, you could say very obviously it was about self-defense and something needed to be done in advance in order to uh, not have the country put at risk in that way. But it's very interesting. It wasn't in any public statements or any formal statements uh, characterized in the way that one would expect. The 1967 Six-Day uh, six War, uh, where the Israelis um, acted, one would say, in, in anticipation, the, the Straits of uh, Tehran had been closed, the Egyptians had reinforced. Uh, these were the classic, this is an absolutely classic case, of a, uh, and, and a strong case could be made for anticipatory <coughs> self-defense. There were forces massing on the border. These are all the classic elements 
um, international observers were withdrawn, etc., etc. You could make a list of them. But the Israelis didn't use that argument. It was saying, well, we had a ceasefire, but we never had a peace agreement, so it's a continuation of the war. But they didn't use the, uh, that uh, legal argument of anticipatory self-defense. So whilst in a sort of just military technical sense, not a legal, I'm not saying this legally, but in a military technical sense, that's obviously what it was. They were anticipating an attack and they, they went first. And so I, I think that's a very interesting case of a reluctance to even express it in a, in a legal sense. Well, the, and then if we go forward into 1981 with the Israeli strike in the Syriac reactor in Iraq, uh, Israel was roundly condemned by the international community uh, for that attack, including by uh, the United States and UK and, uh, and just about everybody else. Um, but in that case, they did, the Israelis did argue that this was anticipatory self-defense. But the counter-argument was that it wasn't immediate, uh, that this was a weapon that perhaps sometime in the future might become material. And the other point was they didn't have proof of the intentions. There wasn't available proof that uh, at that reactor that they were using um, that facility in order to um, uh, develop a weapons program. Uh, of course, uh, 10 years later, or to be more precise, 12 years later, it became obvious that was exactly the case, that uh, it was, in fact, being used to, for a weapons program, as it was found out later on. But uh, I think that's an interesting point. So the one time you go back and you find that this case was, was being made, um, uh, they were roundly condemned for, for this kind of anticipatory self-defense. I think probably, in my personal view, rightly in that occasion, it was far off, but uh, you can always argue about how much of a window you have before you can stop something getting to a point where you can't do anything about it. And we might, in discussion later, think about Iran in this context, or even North Korea in this, in this kind of way. Uh, then we I just put on, for the, just for the sake of uh, bringing us more up to date with the 2003 coalition invasion of Iraq, um, which has been characterized in a number of ways. And, and this is why I think one has to be careful of all the terms. But if you, one looks at, the, say, the UK government's reasoning in formal reasoning as opposed to maybe speeches made, presidential statements, but it was to do with breaches of the UN Security Council resolutions, repeated breaches, so the ceasefire resolution itself, uh, 678, uh, was therefore, uh, so there was still a state of war that one could argue. So this wasn't a anticipatory self-defense, it wasn't, you could, in, in a legal sense, uh, action in advance to prevent some future attack, it was a continuation of the war. I'm, I'm stating it oversimplifying over the arguments. Uh, but the anticipatory defense argument was not used in a legal sense for that particular operation. So, but let's now think about where we are now, the current technical, say scientific and technical environment. And uh, is it the end of imminence? I mean, how relevant is imminence now? Just as you try to think about it, um, the uh, not so much uh, on the nuclear side, but if you were to take the biological side as an example. The advances in the life sciences um, are such 
that you can have laboratory technicians doing the most amazing things. They can be um, doing gene splicing and doing all sorts of things, developing an agent to which you might not have a vaccine. And uh, there are always problems over delivering these agents, but nevertheless, over time, it's becoming easier for a small group or an individual group of individuals, perhaps, to attack uh, and kill very large numbers. I mean, that's uh, a scientific possibility. Um, so one is faced with what we might say with an all-pervasive threat all the time. So you might be in a situation, if you have an Al-Qaeda-type group, for example, um, uh, I'm not saying they have this capability, and don't, I'm talking hypothetically, I stress, uh, but supposing that you had information, you were ahead of a government, or in the cabinet of a government, that had this information, uh, that they had a technical <coughs> capability, it might be biological, it could be something else. Uh, you don't know when they're going to deliver it. Is it going to be tomorrow, next week, next month, or even next year? So an opportunity, the place where it be delivered, you might not know. And you might be faced with a fleeting target of opportunity to prevent this attack taking place. So I'm stating a rather extreme case, uh, theoretically, uh, to try to argue that um, that we need to think about imminence, uh, and there might be occasions uh, when decisions have to be taken, and in the absence of a you know, generally uh, set of, of, of measures or criteria against which to make the judgments where you can argue afterwards to make your case, um, then I think we're in a, a situation where the law may well fall into disrepute, and we're, we're getting to that. Um, if I was to, if you uh, quote from the U.S. National Security uh, Statement of, of September 2002. This is subject is taken on directly, and they say we must adapt to the concept of imminent threat. We must adapt the concept of imminent threat to the capabilities and objectives of today's adversaries. So that's a kind of, at least somebody said something. We need to think about it. But uh, I would make the case we need to think about it collectively and need to think about it internationally. And uh, so if, if, we, if we haven't thought these things through, then uh, I think uh, the, the world will become much more chaotic. And I would just uh, suggest just a few uh, criteria that uh, those who are having to take these terribly difficult decisions need to, um, need to go through. So if you have a set of uh, points to raise, Obviously, the most obvious one is the technical nature of the threat. Is it, is it a nuclear weapon that might be being delivered but would cause massive casualties, damage to property, uh, physical things, as well as, uh, of course, enormous loss of human life, and which is, of course, linked to the gravity of, of, the, of the consequences. Would the state survive such an attack? And what are the intentions of the adversary? This is a, uh, you know, a more challenging one, but, but it, it, it's uh, relevant if you're thinking in terms of an anticipatory action. If you, if you think of uh, the Al-Qaeda example, uh, where they've repeatedly said what their intentions are, that they would, you know, what are the intentions? Do the, does the adversary intend to do this again? You know, would, would this be just one attack, or would there be several, unless we do something about it? And the argument might be, in the case of Al-Qaeda, that uh, there would be there, might, there would be other attacks. How much time is available uh, to, to deal with this uh, <coughs> anticipatory action? And of course, that 
really hard one at the end, the quality of the information, which has dogged the Iraq case, although that's, uh, I remember again, that's not anticipatory self-defense, but uh, that's an example of, of the difficulties over having the right data. But when you have to, when government leaders have to take decisions very quickly, uh, when the consequences are extraordinarily high, if you don't take action, then uh, I think uh, there's a danger uh, that possibly um, that there's an illusion of the right of self-defense in these present circumstances, in the rather extreme case that I've stated. That's the danger if you go uh, too far and saying, well, nothing needs to be done and, uh, against this uh, pervasive threat. And the question of imminence is, is not really substantively discussed. And that's what I would like to see more work done on this area. I think, think enough has, has been done. And, and I've just, just put a list there of what I think the situation is now. Obviously, all states have the right of self-defense, uh, individually and collectively, against an actual threat. And I was in, in a case, an, an imminent threat in the sense that, uh, that an enemy is massing on the borders <laughs> and we're about to attack. Um, there's all sorts of reasons why imminence hasn't really been discussed during the Cold War period with the sort of mutually assured destruction uh, and, and perhaps an adversary with a second strike capability. The question of imminence was never really discussed in the context of perhaps a first strike capability. Now, of course, the UN Security Council can authorize collective anticipatory action. Um, in fact, uh, Mohammed El-Baraidi, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, argued strongly for this in the nuclear context as collective action, of course. Recognizing that uh, technologies, nuclear technologies, can uh, get into the wrong hands much more easily than they could maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So, we need to think through what are the criteria he was saying collectively, I stress. He wasn't talking about an individual state taking action. He called for the need to think things through, and perhaps using a kind of list that I just put up in, in my last slide. And of course, the new situation in terms of what Joseph Nye has called the democratization of violence, where, it's, uh, where the capability for a small group of people to kill very large numbers of people, that's one of the big scientific and technical changes that, that are, we face now in taking these kinds of decisions, which makes it uh, hugely difficult uh, to do. So I, I think the, um, in terms of the questions um, that one might think about, we can think about it here in a few moments, uh, are these, these two questions. Uh, and in the context of current and future threats uh, to national security, you know, what, what do you think imminence means? I would say, I would claim, I'd say, well, it's the end of imminence, the title of something I wrote in the Washington Quarterly. You could argue that. Pervasive threat could be delivered at any time, you don't know when, and so on, so you're faced with this sort of continuous Right. Now, is imminence relevant there? Does it mean that during a, a period you might be faced with an opportunity target that you could deal with that threat, uh, even though the attack might not be the next day or very shortly afterwards? So uh, that's, I think, we need to think through. And, um, and perhaps in legal terms, you know, what is the meaning of, of prevention, preemption, and anticipatory self-defense? I'm saying during my uh, short talk here, that, um, uh, that we should focus on anticipatory self-defense and think about prevention and preemption, discuss that as a strategy, as a doctrine, if you like. Um, but, but I think we will 
lose something if we try to give kind of legal um, uh, uh, definition for that. I don't think we'd get anywhere. We don't think we'd achieve internationally having a, uh, a definition of prevention and preemption. It just would, we wouldn't get anywhere in the discussion. We have to try to um, have some international discussion on this front. I don't, UN Security Council, that's not achievable there. I would say that as in all those uh, historical examples of 1918 Geneva Protocol, 1949 Hague Conventions, the International Committee of the Red Cross has had a, a formative role as a kind of non-government organization to actually think through these issues. And I would like to see the Red Cross uh, bring together international experts to discuss this question of imminence and anticipatory self-defense. That's what I would like to see happen. And if we don't do that uh, and we continue as we are, I think it's a recipe for chaos. So there's all I have to say. Thank you very much. Yes. Well, I would certainly put nuclear weapons and biological weapons as, as making a technical and not a political statement as weapons of mass, mass destruction because they can potentially cause a very large area, very, very large uh, loss of life. In the case of nuclear weapons, of course, physical damage on a very large scale. Although on the biological side, it can also harm crops and animals and cause very long-lasting damage. So I think we should think about those separately. And chemical weapons um, uh, historically are part of that basket of, uh, of weapons of mass destruction. But speaking just militarily, technically, they are an enhanced, in some ways enhanced, conventional weapon. And that's the way, for example, the Iraqis thought about uh, chemical weapons in that way. I think most of those who've used chemical weapons did think about them as not uh, being as a means to attack, for example, large civilian populations. It's just not practical. You need so much material, and it's not possible to deliver in that way. Whereas biological and nuclear weapons are massive, can be. Uh, uh, nuclear weapons, obviously. Biological weapons, not so obviously, but increasingly so, capable of killing very large numbers of people. And, uh, and of course, will affect civilian populations in a large way. So I, I don't think you need necessarily a, a different legal context, but I think if you were to go back to the list of, uh, of criteria that one should go through, I mean, it should be one of the things you would look at. What, what is the potential damage that this weapon could cause, which is you know, what, how grave would be the consequences if we don't do anything right now when we see this group 
in country X, and if we go now, uh, even though we're not able to tell that country X we're going to go there and maybe deliver some Tomahawk missiles or even a group of uh, you know, special forces or something to go there and deal with it. Uh, you know, whereas if it was just a chemical weapon, like it was nerve agent, in that sort of case, it would be much less of a case to do it. But if it was a nuclear weapon uh, and you were sure and the evidence was good and the intelligence was good, that alters the, of the dimensions. I, I think in a decision-making sense it makes a difference, but, but not in a strictly legal sense. I think legal situations the same. Yes, sir. No, I, I'm not. I would argue for having uh, a new convention or or to change the law. What I what I would argue for is some internationally uh, agreed approach or grid through which you would do the decision making. And uh, and uh, so uh, I agree with you. A legal change it, it, we wouldn't get anyway. It would be impossible to negotiate a legal change and a new convention on this. And as such, right as you rightly say, such sensitivity over um, a kind of anticipatory action that you were talking about. Um, although the law has moved on a bit, not, not in this field, but in humanitarian intervention, for example, uh, even without UN approval and so on, that, uh, that kind of action has been taken. And, and that's how the law changes. The law is changed by the actions of states uh, in the end. Uh, it's uh, rather like the common law approach. So, uh, But in this area, I think it would be if legal experts and military experts from, uh, from as many countries you like, but certainly key countries, would, would to say these are the criteria by which we will be judged afterwards. It's not a legally binding document. Uh, I think it would be very healthy to have that kind of discussion. So perhaps if I didn't make clear, I, I'm not calling for new laws, but uh, I think that would be extremely useful to be able to do that. Lady at the back. I can't think of any circumstances in which a kind of democratic, demographic, um, um, I'm not sure I, pressure in that way could be in any way be considered as, as justification for, for military action. I, I can't. It's very hard to think of those circumstances in which it, it would be possible. I mean, uh, it, it's. Uh, I mean, that is not a hostile intent. I mean, that, that's something that's happening. Uh, 
it's something that's a challenge, but it, I don't think it has any relationship to any kind of uh, military uh, decision making. Mary. Okay. Um, well, uh, for those of you who, who are um, uh, who don't know the history of this, what happened was that in 1988, late 1988, uh, a defector who was the deputy head of uh, the main organisation in the then Soviet Union that um, was doing all the research and development for the then hidden. Uh, Soviet biological weapons program, which was a huge program, defected to the United Kingdom. And he was a single source. He delivered uh, very comprehensive information, which at first um, was not believed by UK officials who were debriefing him. And it took them a while into 1989 before they really believed uh, this uh, program existed, that it included even putting biological warfare agents, actually smallpox, into intercontinental ballistic missile warheads and so on. And we know, of course, that that was the case. Um, and through pressure from heads of state, in other words, US President, British Prime Minister, and then the changes in the Soviet Union uh, and Yeltsin coming to power, uh, Gorbachev denied it, although we knew that, that he knew about this program, but he denied its existence. But Yeltsin, in 1992 in April, declared this pro yes, they did have the program. It was in contravention of the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention, of which they were a depository state, by the way, uh, along with the UK and the US, um, and uh, it had ended. But that was all they said about it. And then there was a what was called a trilateral agreement was set up between the U US, UK, and then now Russia uh, to have visits to their biological facilities. We, we, I was part of the. UK-US team would go to Russian facilities, which were not designated in advance, would show up, it would be like a challenge inspection, and then Russians could then go to the UK and US to do the same thing. Um, but throughout all this process, even during the visits, the Russian side never admitted to anything. None of the individuals who entered and so on, but the defector information was good enough uh, for us to make a judgment looking at the equipment there and the facilities and the buildings and say, yes, this is correct. Um, it's an interesting example that uh, this wasn't evidence that you could, unless you put the defector in front of the Security Council, that you could present uh, in that way. But it's enough to satisfy UK government, US governments, and of course, when they were subsequently informed, other governments as well. And uh, so that, that was a, a fascinating exercise to be involved in. And at exactly the same time as you're doing that, certainly I was doing inspections in Iraq as well. So we're going from Iraq to Russia. And uh, the biggest similarity was that neither of them were telling us anything, but uh, apart from that. So um, the problem with Russia still remains is that they, we still don't know what's happened to that biological weapons program, whether it's been you know, completely dismantled or not. Uh, the agreement was supposed to allow access to military facilities, but the Russians so far have not done so. And uh, for all sorts of other political reasons, the pressure has not been put on the, the Russian government to open up their former 
or if they are former, I hope they are, biological weapons facilities and say what's happened to the biological weapons. So it's something of concern. Very large stocks of smallpox, for example, were involved in this program when, you know, as, as some of you probably know, there are only supposed to be two limited stocks, WHO monitored stocks, one in Atlanta at the CDC and one in Moscow. Uh, but we know there are other stocks somewhere else in Russia. So that's the, uh, in a sketch, is, is the background. Sir, you had a... Well, well, certainly, uh, uh, and don't forget that during the Cold War, enormous wars were going on, and there were interventions on extremely large scale, and the more people were killed in armed conflict before, between 1945 and 1990 per year, than they were after 1990, uh, or after 1991. In fact, it's done by, it's only 25%, the deaths in armed, direct deaths in armed conflict are down by 75% after 1990. Uh, yeah, surrogate worth, yes. So, uh, but it, it's coming to your point that where, you're, where a war can be fought without the risk of total annihilation, then of course you know, it, it opens up the possibility. Um, uh, I, I think if you were to think about what, what you've just said, if you take the North Korean case, you know, uh, why, why was it easier to, to go into Iraq in a military sense? I'm not talking politically, but just a straightforward military sense. Uh, well, the, in the North Korean case, um, uh, it's, it's not so much that they might have operational nuclear weapons, but they have 17,000 artillery pieces pointed across the border. And so the military consequences, if you are not completely successful in one fell swoop to, to take out the North Korean regime, which is not something I'm recommending, by the way, at all, uh, it'd be a crazy idea. But, um, but the military dynamic is completely different. And so you can see why less military, no military action in relation, not even seriously being contemplated, even though occasionally it's been said uh, in relation to North Korea. But Iraq was a different story, thought to be doable, uh, because the consequences were, um, as you said, well, it's, it's putting it mildly broken arm, black eye, it's, you know, some serious casualties, you know, more than 2,000 American troops have died there, and many, many thousands of Iraqis have died, many more thousands of Iraqis have died. So there are very serious consequences of that. And uh, we, I mean, there are all sorts of military reasons why, why it turned out that way. Um, but I think your fundamental point is correct. Um, John. I was thinking about the last two, the last slide you had, the two puzzles you were trying to kind of get questions on. And uh, it seems that within it sort of ties in one key thing, anyway, that ties them together is, is that earlier point about quality of information on the threat. And uh, I guess my, my question would be is that we have different ways of getting that, national intelligence, but given your, your perspective as weapons inspections, um, the, we have the legitimate process under international law for inspections like we've had in Iraq. Um, so that was there, that was a process, and we chose to act in lieu of that for not let it necessarily run its full course, perhaps some of the So then the, the, I guess my question then would be, uh, given that 
case of the role of weapons inspectors in the run-up to the Iraq war in 2003, what, what kind of lessons can we take from that with regard to quality of information relative to the international agency versus the national intelligence capacities to make judgments with regard to this kind of that's a huge question, which has all sorts of uh, political and, uh, and uh, other context to it, but I just try and focus on the intelligence part of it. Um, I, I think one lesson was that insufficient um, serious account, and I'm, I'm talking about not only the, the latter inspection period, the UNMAVIC inspection period, but also the UN Special Commission 1990s part, which I was personally involved in, insufficient account and seriousness was assigned to the information gathered by the inspectors. There was more value assigned to information that was given by maybe defectors, maybe by agents, maybe a third or fourth or fifth hand coming through, that through those confidential secret sources. And so natural instinct, I think, to, that, that must be more important. Uh, and the filter which, and judgment that is applied to that was somehow not applied in the way it, sh it should have been. We always felt all along uh, that the, the chief inspector's reports of each individual inspections, although you know, the states could look at those and they could read them, but uh, they were kind of rather dismissed as being, with these people, they were talking directly to Iraqis, that they perhaps uh, you know, the value of the information was, was, was inevitably much less. So I, I think, in the, for the sake of we were we as an inspector, we were looking at a lot of open sources. We weren't just looking at. Uh, we, we got a limited amount of intelligence information. The bulk of the information, from my own personal experience, for for uh, looking uh, at sites in Iraq, uh, I should think I don't know how to put a percentage on it because it varied with every inspection. But it was less than 25 percent of the of the data that one was using to make a judgment about what you were looking at, and in particular where you were going to go and the people you want to speak to. So we were using multi-sources. So the inspectors, I think, both UNMAVIC and UNSCOM, probably even more the UNSCOM people, were using much more varied sources. And because we, we were not intelligence officers and we didn't have access to, you know, occasionally we did speak to intelligence services of different governments because under Resolution 687, governments were required to speak to the UN Special Commission. So speaking to the Israeli intelligence services was part of our job. So that's why we did that. But we were look we I suppose in a sense we had much more of an overview. Uh, and uh, but in the end when it came to this is where we need to distinguish between uh, sort of political statements which the uh, the dossier so called of uh, I think it was uh, September uh, 2002, uh, and both in the U.S. and uh, and in the U.K., um, you know, was a political statement. That wasn't an intelligence statement. And if you would have stripped it right down and looked at the intelligence, take the CIA key judgment, which led to, which was the response to the Senate committee's uh, request on the CIA to look at these things. The first key judgment was Iraq may be capable of developing a nuclear weapon sometime in the next 10 years. Was that an imminent threat? I mean, um, I mean, that's actually, we have to look at that and then look at the political statement. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and uh, 
I think the intelligence service, I'm not saying they didn't get things wrong. Of course they did. But they took a far more of a beating. You know, they were completely wrong. I don't think that was, that's a fair statement. But that's you know, the general sort of wisdom, as it were, now. So I think the interface, to try to, try to answer your question as a, as a second lesson, uh, apart from the first one I just mentioned, is that interaction between the intelligence and the policy community. In the end, the you know, political leaders have to take decisions. They have to take responsibility. And they may not necessarily agree with the judgments of the intelligence services. And that's a fair point, as long as you can justify it afterwards. Um, and it uh, may be necessary to do that. But that interaction, I think, broke down in the, in the, both in, in, in the major powers to some extent. And so they were so convinced of the rightness of their cause that they overstated the capabilities the Iraqis had. Uh, the Iraqis did have capabilities. I'm not one of, one of those who said they didn't. Um, uh, I, I speak as someone who interviewed Dr. Rehab Taha, who was a senior person in their biological weapons program, and asked her two questions. One was, um, uh, do you regret working on a biological weapons program? So by then, she admitted to doing so. And she said, no, not at all. And my second question, which uh, uh, was, would you do it again? And her answer was yes, I and mean, no hesitation, yes. Uh, and uh, so you have to think about these kinds of things. Now, did they have a large store and inside it a thousand bombs with anthrax in it? Uh, probably not. Uh, so um, could they quickly, late, you know, within a short period of time after inspectors have gone, developed a capability? Yes, they could. So there's the really kind of hard judgments here. Um, how long would it take them? I'm not quite sure. Um, how many people would it kill? How efficient would it be? Well, I'm not quite sure. It could kill quite a lot of people. Now, is that an imminent threat in the way that we've just been talking about? And it's a real challenge to think about these issues. I don't envy the policymakers in these circumstances. So I just give those to John. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that might uh, not. You mean not deterred by other means other than military means? They'd be deterred by military. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that would be a fair uh, criterion to to add add to the list. But I suppose it was hidden in the intentions part of it that that would be a deduction you would draw from the from the intentions part of it. That um, uh, if. Uh, you take the, uh, w w would you think about the Iranians in this particular case? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But um, I mean, they were. I mean, I can't see a way of them being deterred from continuing with the. If they are indeed working on a weapons program, it seems likely they are. But I see. Yeah, yeah, yes, I'm, I accept that. But I, I, I don't see an external means of stopping them in the direction they're going. I mean, as I, well, we were having conversation about this last night, but I think they are, they are intent on moving themselves, at the very least, to a position that within a short period of time they could move to having a weapons capability, like Japan can, like Belgium can, like many other countries around the world, and they'll get to that point. Uh, and whether they go the whole way is, is, is another matter. Sir, you've been asking a question. Yes, this <laughs> is, sorry. I, My
Well, I agree with the first part of that. It's a situation that, that there's a lot of dangerous potential in it, but I, I don't think we're anywhere near a point where you know, there might be that military action might be the solution. I, I, both from a technical and a political point of view, I don't think that I, if I was a military commander or I was a chief of staff advising President Bush or, or someone else for that matter, I don't think I could put my hand on my heart and say, I've got the military capability that will deal with this nuclear capacity they have so that they won't be able to restart it and have it again. So it will solve the problem. I don't think that's military, militarily possible. I mean, just on its own. Just, but just think of the political ramifications as well would be, would be enormous. So um, uh, I, th I think we have to learn. I think, uh, I think the... It, this, this problem will be solved internally in Iran. Uh, I think uh, others who are more expert than me on Iran, although I have been there not so long ago, um, but I, I think that, that, that my impression, I was actually at Zayton more than a year ago when I was there, but a, a, a city in turmoil. You know, the people I spoke to, debate, it was buzzing. Um, will, how long will Ahmadinejad last? How long will those views last? I don't know. You already hear Rasanjani just putting a kind of note of caution saying, well, the president's right. You know, we have every right to go ahead and do whatever we want to and have our own nuclear fuel cycle, of course, for energy. But we have to be careful how we deal with the international community. That was Rasanjani's kind of mild warning shot. And he wouldn't say that on his own. There must be other people who feel like that. So when, when thinking about Iran, I think... I think uh, it's the domestic politics that are going to make the difference. I know there are those that argue, well, the reform movement stalled and it's not going anywhere. I mean, it's not quite how I would see it, but, um, uh, but, it, it, but nevertheless, it's a situation with dangerous potential. It's right to be worried about it. It's right that pressure should be put around saying, you know, we're not sure of your intentions. For 18 years, don't forget, they, they've been uh, not doing what they should have been doing, hadn't made all the declarations they've been doing. This is a long-term issue. It's not, that it's, not, it's not good enough for them to say, we have every right to have a new, our own nuclear fuel cycle. We, we say, okay, you know, that, that not, that's not illegal for you to have that. But you've cheated for 18 years. How can we be sure you're not diverting this material or using it for weapons program? You give us no confidence. Show us confidence. You know, and I think that's a reasonable position to take. But that's where we are. I don't think military action is... You know, I don't think it's part of this discussion we've just been having. I think Iran's anywhere near that at the moment. Sorry, Rick. We, the United States. We, the United States. Mm -hmm. And that these weapons we're discussing today are kind of weapons of the weak. They might be an equalizer that allows them to counteract a whole network of what they see as weapons mm -hmm. that constrain their economy, constrain or control their leadership, that imprison many of their people, uh, and lead to lots of death and, and hardship on their side. And so their, their, their sense is that talking here about containing the kind of weapon systems they might use against us, but the structural violence, as they might describe it, is embedded in the current status quo, is sort of 
put off limits for any kind of conversation, not even perceived as a threat, which they see as an active threat and not just thinking of them. And I'm wondering how we, you know, politically this creates a real difficult problem in the sense that we're talking about a very narrow set of military activities, and they're seeing a wider set of weapons folks here that are they're used and have lots of damage done as a consequence. What do you think about this general well, certainly a general problem. I, I, I would perhaps characterize it just a little bit differently. I know you, for, for, to, to make things more stark, you characterize against us against them. But it, it's who us is and who they are. That, that just to make it a little more fine-grained, if you go around the, uh, the Gulf, for example, as I, I know you have, um, they perceive the Iranian threat as something really serious to them. Why, why does Saudi Arabia have have uh, uh, Chinese ballistic missiles. It's not to do with the United States, of course. It's to do with Iran. It's to do with balancing capabilities around the Gulf. Why does the, the GCC even exist so they can band together? Uh, so, uh, and if you were to go back, Iraq was also a problem for its neighbors um, as well. So it, you know, it's extraordinarily complex. So I, I think we have to think very carefully about who we are United States, maybe UK, and other Western powers, and they, and, and I don't think collectively you could say the Gulf and the Middle East, you know, they are them against which we are, we are uh, perceived as a threat, even if we're not, but perceived as a threat. But within there's an internal dynamic, an intra-regional dynamic, which uh, I think makes the situation com complicated. If you go, go to North Korea, uh, I, I think what I would take from, from your remark, because it just also, another point you were making about, of course, they would go and seek these capabilities. It's their way of overcoming the inequity, the imbalance, the military imbalance, if you like. And that's a classic case as North Korea, who do it with a putative capability. I mean, it's not even operational. I mean, they might have devices that can go bang, you know, a fission, I mean, a real fission device, uh, but they haven't got a missile that's capable of delivering it other than, you know, it might be able to get one to Japan, but it's questionable. Um, so. They, don't they, they are not developing this capability or, or making us believe they have this capability. This is fascinating. I, I could go back to Iraq on this subject. What were they making us believe? They were trying to influence our perceptions. North Korea is exactly trying to influence their perceptions. And that's their big lever that they can pull. What exercises Washington? They might have a you know, three-stage uh, missile in which they could put a nuclear warhead and send it over to San Francisco. That's what exercises. Washington, and, and if they can make a noise or make beliefs move in that direction, make something happen, um, uh, and and, uh, and the dynamic, then that's the Washington North Korea dynamic. And there's another one with Japan, North Korea, South Korea, China. China wouldn't want uh, the North Koreans to have a really operational capability. That's the last thing they would want to see that the, the, the North Koreans have. So there's a you know there's kind of leverage in that direction. Um, and uh, Japan getting getting worried about its looking after itself and of course changing their article, you know, the article in their self-defense uh, in their constitution is at Article 9, I forget whether it's 9 or 8, uh, so that they haven't just got self-defense forces, but got offense, uh, forces that can do offensive operations. That dynamic's operating in North Korea, is, you know, important part of that, uh, if, if they can't feel confident that they're going to get support from others and when, when the chips are down. And you, and you could go to the South Asia, 
Um, and there's a different dynamic and operation there between India and China and India and the rest of the world. Uh, if, if there's anything that, you know, about a nuclear capability that was so overtly political and, and not having much military relevance, that's the Indian you know, uh, nuclear capability, which is, of course, not a new thing. That, that was going on during the Cold War. They had a capability by before the Cold War ended in any case. So it's not a product of recent events. Um, but it's to do with their relationship with China and being taken seriously. What is, what's the big lesson that's gone out to a number of countries? India is a strategic partner of the United States. Would, would they be doing that if they hadn't had an explicit nuclear capability? They had an implicit one before, which we all knew about. Now they have an explicit one. So they're taken seriously. And, and in a sense, that's the way India moved its sort of strategic positioning up to a, a whole another level. An important lesson's taken that. And where probably has the lesson been taken more strongly than anywhere? Ter Tehran, I would argue. And uh, I'm sorry, I've, I've sort of strayed away from your original point, but I was just trying to trace a course of a, of a fascinating dynamic. Uh, and I think the developments in India are probably more influential on places like Tehran and, and, and Pyongyang than anything the United States does, um, except in reaction to the Indian program. I've rambled on. It's a very good question there. Uh, yes, ma'am. That, that, that's, that's the legal situation. The, the, the bit I know about more is in London. That's exactly their position. The, the ceasefire conditions were not fulfilled. And so, uh, and you must also couple that with the, which is uh, sometimes dismissed by some scholars, as the 1992 UN Security Council summit declaration. That, that uh, don't forget, it was, it was the leaders, not just the ambassadors sitting around the Security Council table where they declared the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, meaning nuclear, biological, and chemical, as a threat to international security, and therefore subject to Chapter 7 operations. Uh, so there's that, that was another background factor in that. Of course, that, that declaration was made you know, just after the, well, the first Gulf War, and not surprising they could readily get agreement just at that point. But, I mean, five years later, they would never have got agreement on, on a statement like that. But no, you're you're correct, sir. Yes. Um, you know, I think the the military is looking at not only NBC, the chemical biological, as as the WMD threat, but also radiological HE explosives. Uh, so one scenario, any of those five things could be weaponized outside the United States, transported to the United States, either by sea or what about the other scenario where the materials for any of those events are already in the United States? I look at 9-11, where the materials was the kinetic energy of fuel planes and the gasoline on those planes. Uh, you have LNG tankers and terminal offload facilities in at least one Navy facility. You have nuclear reactors in the United States. So 
So when 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 was the first plane that hit the World Trade Center? When was that recognized as a And when was the second plane? Was it seconds? So given that hair trigger Well, you raise some interesting points, and perhaps I'll, I'll pick on a couple. Um, that uh, I, I don't think we should be tied down in, in a technical sense that weapons of mass destruction are only nuclear fission devices or fusion devices, um, chemical weapons in the classic way they're defined, and biological weapons the way they're defined. There are other ways of causing very large numbers of casualties. So I don't think we should be locked in by the vocabulary. And so if we were going through the list that I that I, I put up, um, you know, the technical nature of the threat. That's not just about NBC. Is this potential that we might be able to stop at this moment going to kill 10,000 people? That's a grave consequence. We should do something about it. If you knew about it in advance, you were sure about it. Uh, and the evidence was good. So I, I, my statement wasn't just about nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. I have to say, a radiological weapon, in other words, a high explosive device that scatters radioactive material, is not going to kill a large number of people. It's more a weapon of mass disruption than destruction. Um, and if it was in, say, a financial district of, of a city, say the city of London or some, somewhere like that, it would be, unless you have all the redundancy, it would be ter terribly difficult. But um, on your point of imminence, I, mean, I, I think that, uh, don't forget, of course, the 9-11 attack and the US and others' response into Afghanistan, that was a straightforward Article 51 and declared as such, um, you know, uh, and NATO agreed, and, and so that was a, a direct response to that. But when I'm thinking about imminence in this context, uh, that classically, uh, if you have information that an enemy, at, at an instant, like there's somebody outside that door, and I knew about it before he actually threw a bomb in here, and if I had a means of stopping him or her from doing that. that that's the classic definition. You know, it's so close in time that therefore an attack in advance to stop that from happening is justified. What, I, what I'm saying is if we only think about it like that and, and um, then I think you know, we could be in some very difficult situations because what does imminence mean when you have a, 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 a terrorist group that have enormous capability of some kind it might be a nuclear weapon, it might be some other uh, type of type of weapon, uh, but you don't know. Is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be next week or next month? Because they're using an opportunity to actually deliver their weapon. But if you have information on where they are and you could stop them, and they were in another country, should you do something about it or not? But I think you need to kind of run down that list and not be, as you correctly point out, tied down to nuclear, biological, or chemical weapons. Thank uh, Terence Taylor for an interesting talk, and I want to thank Mary Sarahi, who uh, managed to persuade him to come visit us. So thank you, Mary, and thank you very much. I want to also make a couple announcements. Uh, tomorrow here uh, is a conference. We have three conferences. We're heavily loaded with conferences in the early part of the quarter. The conference starting tomorrow is on uh, what Herb Weisberg calls the wartime election of 2004. And it's an exploration of the effect national security considerations had on the most recent U.S. election. And he's invited and managed to persuade to come here literally a superstar cast of political scientists who study elections uh, more generally, but this election in particular. And 
for them, uh, the conventional wisdom often was national security doesn't usually determine elections, so they see the wartime election of 04 as something of real interest. The following weekend, uh, we have a conference on the relationship between constructivism and realism that Alex Went and um, Dan Nexon are co-coordinating here. And again, it's, that's a little more theoretical in the sense of how you combine two uh, different kind of isms in uh, theoretical thinking these days. And then the following weekend, starting on the 26th, it's actually not a weekend, it's a Thursday, Friday, in conjunction with the law school, we're sponsoring a conference on called Bridging Ethnic Differences, uh, Conflict Resolution, Divided Societies. And that'll occur at the law school in conjunction with the Journal for Dispute Resolution that, that the law school uh, students uh, publish. So we have lots on, and then there's stuff in between, but I wanted to draw your attention and invite all of you to the three main conferences that I see over the next uh, three, four weeks. So thank you all. Thank you again, Terry, for coming. Thank you.